Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the Fanzine Podcast. Just before we get started with the show, this is your host, Tony Fletcher. I want to invite you to sign up for the weekly newsletter over at tonyfletcher.substack.com. It'll give you updates on this podcast, my other podcast, all forms of recommendations with a midweek update, a long-form weekend read. Sign up is absolutely free. There are interview archives, uh, additional podcast features, and you will be able to to see uh, more of the fanzines that uh, we're talking about on this show. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. Thanks again. Now on with the pod. It's the fanzine. Fanzine. Podcast. I mean, the thing about a fanzine was holding it in your hand, right? and looking at the way it had been put together and the punk way it had been put together, quite quite frankly. And it had a staple in it, you know, and and that was, that is a fanzine, right? Greetings, one and all. Welcome to the Fanzine Podcast. I am your host, Tony Fletcher. And today on what I think is episode 23, we are, I am honoured, flattered, chuffed to be in the company of or to have recorded an interview with Mark Perry, Mark P, the one and only editor of Sniffing Glue, which was the original British punk fanzine, the most famous of pretty much all music fanzines out there, including in the United States, the one that really got the scene going in the UK, the one without which there would have been no jamming my own zine, um, and the one without which there would have been no reason to put together a fanzine exhibition at the Punk Rock Museum in Las Vegas. Did you know that there's a Punk Rock Museum? Did you know it was in Las Vegas? Because I did not. Not until literally the day before I, I was sitting down to edit this episode, like like record what I'm recording now, and somebody went there, and uh, actually it was Liz, Liz Mason, who was on our last episode, and uh, took some pictures of herself um in front of the uh, the exhibition, pointing at jamming. And um, I think maybe I got back to her quick enough once she notified me and also pointing to sniffing glue. Um, you know, the, 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 I'm mentioning this because A, it seems sort of somewhat ludicrous to me. Um, and B, I guess we've got to accept it. People like Mark and myself, our work is in museums. And I can't really get my head around that. Like when we were doing this stuff, I'm sure I can speak for Mark here as well. When we were doing this stuff, like 45 years ago, at least, the idea that it would end up in the museum. I mean, you were kind of like hoping it might end up in a record shop to, to go on sale that week. Um, you know, I remember when the British Library wanted a copy of Jamming and I was like, go out and buy one. You you just weren't thinking about the fact that this stuff was going to have a history and be archived and end up in museums. And yes, I am laughing about how preposterous it, it seems. Now, in the conversation that follows, which is a really, really good one, Mark, Mark was a great guest. But in this conversation, Mark clearly wrestles with this issue of nostalgia, maybe more so than myself, because his contribution to punk and to fanzines, you know, both these things is so profound and so long lasting um, that obviously he has every right to be really, really proud of it. And that comes across. And at the same time, he doesn't want that to be the only thing he's known for. And that also comes across. And, uh, you know, it can be hard to find a balancing act there. You want to, you know, you want to celebrate your past. I'm proud of what I've done in my life. But you also want to be moving on. Mark started Sniffing Glue in 1976. He ended it in 1977. He put out a dozen issues in barely a year. Um, he ended it because he was getting disenchanted with um, 
with punk rock and, and I, I, I certainly can't blame him. I mean, he was ending it as kids like me at the age of 13 were jumping on board. And I'm sure he was taking a look at us 13 year olds jumping on board and going, I'm out of here. But he also had a band going, Alternative TV, an excellent band, as hopefully most of you will know. And he's carried on making music as Alternative TV over the years. Um, and that was what he wanted to focus on. And, uh, you know, good for him for doing so. I think it's great that Sniffing Glue ran that 12 issues. Seems like a really good number and then called it a day while it was uh, peaking at 15 to 20,000 copies, which was enormous, really, when you think about that. I'm, I'm also really glad this was not um, done much earlier than than. Then we've done this. I uh, when I when I relaunched the fanzine podcast, you know, distinct from being an initial jamming fanzine podcast, I didn't want to just start with Mark Perry. It seemed too obvious, and I kind of like that we've been doing you know some current fanzines. Indeed, Liz Mason, who I mentioned along with Billy McCall, was on the last episode. Uh, you know, a couple of people who are Americans putting out perzines on a very frequent, uh, at a very frequent rate, and I want to be able to continue doing that. Um, Although you might be listening to this episode in God knows what year, and I hopefully uh, it'll stick around. But as of my recording this, I'm about to go back to the UK. I hope to maybe do a couple of episodes in person over there. I'd like to do the football fanzine scene. I'd like to do the contemporary dance music fanzine scene. You know, there's a lot that goes on in the world of fanzines, a lot for us to discuss on this show. But it did make sense eventually to have Mark on here. Mark has a book uh, of Sniffing Glue. It came out uh, in the past and it's been republished uh, due to you know public demand, republished by Omnibus Press, who've immediately sold out of the initial print run. Um, and it gathers together every single issue of Sniffing Glue. There's also an introduction from Mark. It's nicely laid out. And Omnibus have been kind enough to give us a copy to give away to you. Uh, it doesn't matter what country you're in, they will handle the postage um, and uh, we're going to go ahead and um, I'm going to announce that competition now. Now, uh, I will need to um, put a date on this, at least for now. I'm going to put the date of March the 19th on it. Um, just for whatever reason, that's the date I'm going to hit on. And uh, to give you a heads up, um, what I'm going to ask you to do is in the show notes, that is on your phone, it's on your computer, there's going to be a link to a page at my Substack, uh, which is where I run my newsletters and where I can put out more information about this episode than you could find on show notes. Follow that link. Please, this part's important, do subscribe. You just subscribe for free. That's all I'm asking so that you get the regular newsletters, you stay up to date, etc., etc. And then answer this question. You'll uh, have information on the page I'm going to link to about how to do it. It'll be a direct message to me. Answer this question. Mark is going to name three fanzines that were already existing when he started Sniffing Glue. Uh, obviously not punk fanzines like Sniffing Glue, but there were three fanzines already in existence uh, that helped influence him and tell him and show him that it could be done. And please name those three fanzines. That's all you have to do. Just be on the listen out. Name those three fanzines. Go on the Substack page. Send over the answer on a direct message. And on March 19th, I will just put however many correct answers I've got in a hat draw out one lucky winner, they'll be notified and uh, you'll get yourself a free copy in the mail once only of us have uh, got the book reprinted. 
All right. With all of that, I'm going to have us jump on in. I'm sure I've missed out a couple of things. I'll probably catch up with them at the end. Have yourself a wonderful time listening to us. Uh, only slightly edited for length, uh, as ever, edited out the stuff where I'm talking more than my guest. And uh, I hope you enjoy what you have. It's such a great story about Sniffing Glue, the original punk rock fanzine. Here we go. Hello, Mark. How are you doing today? Hi. Yeah, I'm okay, thank you. Yeah, good nice to speak we, to you. It's lovely to speak to you again. We've had a couple of connection problems, which feels very punk rock. Uh, um, <laughs> and and we're doing this without the usual video, just so that we can uh, deal with some potential bandwidth problems. But um, uh, I think this is the third time I've um, had some kind of interview pro, uh, conversation with you. Where uh, one of them was done in London at Forty Products back in 78 right. one of them was done in brooklyn when you came over and played the uh, record uh, the uh, club at the top of my street south point yeah um, that's right yeah i remember that yeah roughly probably 2001 yeah. 2002 and Something uh like that. and this one is being done uh, by the powers and wonders of digital technology i'm in uh, kingston new york where are you these days mark I'm in a, a, a little village called um, Haymore, which is just outside Penzance in Cornwall. So we're, we're I'm quite a long way from London now. A long way from uh, Deptford. Uh, what, Absolutely. What took, what took you down to Cornwall? Well, my, my wife is from, she's actually from the village we live in. So we came down originally about five or six years ago, eight years ago now actually, to look after her father, like my father-in-law. Yeah. So we, he's, he's passed away now, but we've ended up staying down here and, you know, so yeah, that's why I'm stuck down here in a quite little village. How how do you like that after, I mean, were you in London the whole time previously? Yeah, mostly. Yeah, I was mostly in London. Yeah, like all over South East London, North West. I've, I've lived all over London. But when I met my wife, I ended up moving down to Portsmouth at first. Yeah. Um, so, and then we came down to Cornwall. It, it's okay. I, I think I actually do a lot less. You know, if I was living in London, London now, you know, there's so many stuff going on like Q and A's, gallery openings, gigs, and that. I'd be more involved in a scene whatever that scene is now but yeah I'd, I'd sort of do well down here actually i think i'm probably better off out of it a bit so yeah. when i do when i do make appearance in london it, it's more special you know what I mean? it's like <laughs> it's a unique thing it's like i'm doing um next month i'm going to london to do a q a because of this this book coming out the sniffy glue book and it's the first time i've done anything like that in london for something like 10 years so it's sort of a bit where other people, you know, you always see them doing stuff. But me, it's quite unique that I make an appearance. Perhaps most of these people have got nothing to say. I mean, you get people that have written a book. You know, they, they were in a punk band, say, for a couple of years, you know, 77 to 79. Yeah. And then they sort of did a, then they did a solo thing and whatever. And then, you know, so they, their career ended. They want to get a normal job. And then, you know, the sort of punk revival thing started. So they started playing gigs and now, and they're like full of it. They've written a book, but they've got nothing to say. You know, they're not really interesting people. I mean, they wrote, they, you know, they probably had one or two 
good punk songs that ended up on some compilations. But a lot of these people, you know, well, I suppose it is critical. They've got absolutely nothing to say, you know, and they sort of get dragged out. They get dragged around the country doing these Q&As and these book signings. You know, for what? It's like people, you know, it's not like Joni Mitchell's turning up or Bob Dylan. You know, wow, <laughs> you know what I mean? Or even me or even yourself who started something. It's just people that, it's just like drag. And it's, again, it's just overkill. Every week there's a gallery opening, you know, punk art, whatever that means. I know. This. It's, I... it's dreadful. It's, it's, it's embarrassing. You know, I know I was involved in it, but, you know, you know, I was, you know, back then, but now that I find half of it embarrassing, like, you know, it's a shame. I know. Really. I've I, just been aware, I was looking at a couple of interviews you've done over the last couple of years as well. And <laughs> I think it's really important to have a balance. Um, I do think I people who, people who potentially never contributed much to music could be great writers and could write a brilliant book. And people who had multiple hit records could write an absolutely terrible book. But um, there's yeah. clearly a massive, massive, uh you know nostalgia scene out there and i saw you make the point as we all move into our 60s it's people who've got income and they sort of want to validate their their youth it's both nostalgia and sort of looking for validation and i think it's a thin line because i listen to a lot of new music from across the board i mean like ambient electronic loud soft all of it and there are some wonderful musicians that i've followed all my life who seem to be as good as ever and i just think it's really really important to have that balance. I'm very, I say this going into this conversation, I like doing this podcast, but having done a bunch where I was sort of traipsing back through the 80s and my own scene, I've been talking to people who are putting out zines nowadays, uh, people who are in the States, like like there is the idea that we're the only people who ever had a fanzine culture is, is, you know, as rubbish as saying we're the only people who ever had a music culture. So on that subject. Absolutely. On oh, that subject, you've got the book out again. Um, I have the original edition and I have the, uh, I have the new edition, which Omnibus were kind yeah. enough to send me. Uh, essentially what you've done, sniffing glue, the essential punk accessory, and you've printed every single, or the new one, I guess, that was the original one. The new one is called Sniffing Glue and Other Rock and Roll Habits, which I guess was the title. And it still says in a little star up top, the essential punk accessory. It's got Mark Perry credited as author, and it collects together every single page of Sniffing Glue, the good, the bad, the adverts, um, by which I don't mean the band, though they're in there as well. All the the ads that are in there. And although you've got an introduction, um, there's a bit less... um, by way of external writing than in the original waffle. edition. There's le- less waffle. Less waffle. Last time we had, last, well, Danny Baker was involved last time, cause, so there was a hell of a lot of waffle. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to I get like, to that. I, what, my opinion is like, this is what I did, put it out, no fluff, you know yeah. what I mean? And then make your own, make your, make, they can make their own mind up, you know? Well, well, with that, I thought we would start right from the end, right now, when you look back on this and you've been forced to look back on it, uh, particularly, let's say, if you look back on the book and flick through it, what's your own thoughts about what you uh, achieved and maybe did not achieve with Sniffing Glue? I was, it's interesting, actually, because I was taught this on, if this is all I had, I probably wouldn't do it. I'd probably just run off and, now oh, I don't want to talk about it anymore. But because... You know, I'm still doing music, and I'm doing contemporary music. I'm not doing the old. I mean, I don't know if you know about the what 
TV do now. But we don't we don't play the whole nostalgia circuit. You know, that's really the most important thing on my life is my music. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so the nice thing about Sniffing Glue for me is it's sort of this like it's like it's like Elvis Presley in the issue of rock and roll. Elvis, it's immovable. He was the first. Yeah. It's like the Beatles. They were the first. No one's going to knock the Beatles off their perch. And the nice thing about Sniffing Glue, in a way, I don't have to argue for it anymore. It just it remains because it was the first UK punk fanzine. I've got that really nice feeling, you know. What I mean that you know any book about fanzine has to mention sniffing glue. So I'm sort of proud of it. And the nice thing is I don't have to add anything to it. You know what we did, I'm really proud of. And this is the important thing. Like I said to you before, Tony, we started just at the right time, you know, in the right place at the right time, and we ended just before it became you know, it out, it out sort of outlived its usefulness, you know. So I'm really proud that we just stuck around for those 12 issues. So on that on that sense, yeah, I'm really proud of what I've done. I think it's genius, all of it. I think it's brilliant. We didn't overdo it, ended when it did, and I, I'm happy to talk about it, but probably only because the actual creative side of me, I'm actually doing within the music and with the band, you know what I mean? So but I'm happy to talk about what I did 40 years ago, you know, you know. Yeah, um, as long as people realise that that's not all you did and you're carrying on making well, that's right. You know what, I'd be worried, and if people would worry me, if, if I came along and said, right, you know, it's Sniffing Glue, so, because there's so much interest in punk still, Sniffing Glue is going to be re-released. I'm going to do a new version of Sniffing Glue. I mean, that would be dreadful, you know what I mean? Because it would be like these bands dragging out the old act again, you know, the stiff little thing is the skids of this world that just won't stop, you know? And if I did that, but I, I don't need to do that because usually, because Sniffing Glue is the first, I can just leave it alone and it remains a sort of bastion in a way, doesn't it, of sort of fanzine brilliance, you know what I mean? It's a, so, it's a, it's a benchmark. I have to tell you when you're talking well, about sort of the... the, the, the uh, possibility or the the un- impossibility of bringing it back i used to have nightmares like literally like have these <laughs> dreams right. where where yeah, i but... was i was doing a new issue of jamming and people were going you know you've been 30 years doing this issue like can i can i have my subscription back well, I, never... I, won't, I won't tell you the whole story right because again no names i don't like slagging people off but i, I slag the ideas off but not yeah. the people i don't like that but I got a few years ago, I got asked to be an editor to edit a new magazine, a new rock magazine that was going to come out, you know, and they sort of gave me the sort of synopsis of it all. They gave me the premise and that, you know, through email and stuff like that. I never got to the actually sitting down in a room with anybody. And I just read it and thought, you know, and it was, a part of me was going great. They've asked me to be an editor of a magazine, you know, there was money involved and everything. But the other part of me said, no, this is going to be so naff. This is going to be so naff. And now that magazine is in it's in WH Smith's. It's everywhere. And you, and you know what? It's naff. It's the worst, honestly. It's, it is dreadful. I won't name it. But so I did have what I'm saying. I was given this opportunity to get back into that sort of, oh, the editor and that, talk about this, talk about that. But I just thought, no, I've, had, I've done my time. I yeah. can't better sniffing glue, so why would I go down there? And the actual magazine, again, won't mention the name, it's just so naff. 
The You've really got me thinking now. I am going to have to, but I come over. I mean, I'm assuming it's not classic rock. I'm assuming it's not prog rock. Although, although Mark, we have to talk about prog rock. Um, oh, yeah. There must be yeah. some. There must be some punk revival mag out there that I'm not aware of. I'm gonna. I'm gonna look for this. You've got me. You got me sleuthing away. Now. But yeah, but I'm glad. What I'm saying is, I'm going to turn it around because I've done the glue. You can't better the. Glue. So why would I sort of want to spoil my record, my no. magazine edit editor's record by sort of like doing something naff, you know, that lasts like, I don't know. It's still going, so there must be something about it that people liked. Yeah, well, there's that thing about, uh, uh, you know, if they found the market, and we well know there's a market for, certainly if there's a market for punk nostalgia. Listen, you made Absolutely. a point that... You made a point. I want to. I want to like give you your props right now. I was listening to um, some of what I could find by alternative TV in recent years, um, and uh, as you say, it's it's its own music. It's been your kind of mainstay. It's been what you've been doing musically, rather than you know doing a fanzine, magazine, writing if the you know the, the written word for decades now. And wherever people can check out alternative TV, be it on. Um, yeah, I know you're on some of the streaming platforms. I don't. I actually don't know if you've got Bandcamp, but uh, but no, just we, to... we haven't gone down. We haven't gone a Bandcamp route, no. Right. Okay. So people can find it where they can find it. But I think that point that you're making, because uh, I don't want to knock everybody who's out there on a nostalgia circuit, but some some people have, like in your case, it's it's your band name, so you've got every right to keep it. But people shouldn't expect you to be doing what you were doing in '78, '79, '77, or or playing the hits. So uh, from that period, so you, you know, I want to make that point because it is about moving forward, even if you want to keep the name you've had forever. Let's go. Let's go back to that period. You've got a few years on me, Mark. I think you're about seven years older than me. Um, right. We did both grow up in South London. You were kind of a perfect age in many ways for punk, um, but you had a bit of experience going into it. And I, you know, I think just just take a minute and set the scene because you weren't a 15, 16 year old whose first gig was, you know, the Nash, the 100 Club or something with watching the Pistols. No. You'd already done, you know, you'd already been through that early to mid 70s period for you having gone to shows since like 1972 what was what what was what was good about london in say 1976 the music scene and what was naff to use your word well well i, I want to sure that in a way i'm not sure any of it was naff because let's face it you know growing up the age i was i mean when the 70s started i was about like um, probably about 14 15. I mean, my first show, get this, I was I was thinking about the other day, somebody asked me, and my first gig I went to was the Beach Boys at Royal Festival Hall. I was 15 years old. I went, my cousins, I mean, how bad's that as a first gig, you know, the Beach Boys? At the Royal. And, you know, and I saw everybody because, you know, living in London, there were so many gigs. There's so many, like, you had the small clubs like the Marquee and all that. And, you know, the bigger ones like the Rainbow Theatre, Hammersmith Odeon. So I saw everybody. I saw the Who, I saw, like... You know, lots of lots of times, you know, the Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd. I mean, I saw every major band. So it was great. I mean, the gig scene was amazing. And of course, and then after a while, so you had all those big, the big acts, you know, as I sat the rainbow and stuff like Roxy Music. I saw Bowie a few times, you know, in the early 
companies. And and then sort of as well as that, there was the small, you know, what became the pub rock scene. So you had the smaller scene, which, you know, people like Dr. Feelgood, you know, lots of Brinsley Swatches of this world, bands like Man, Big, you know, Hawkwind, all that's coming at the places like the Roundhouse and that. You know, they'd have those all day Sunday shows at the Roundhouse. You saw about five bands, you know, all yeah. bands that are now legendary, you know, Man, Hawkwind, the Cursal Flyers, all that sort of stuff. So, it wasn't it wasn't in a way when punk came along i sort of bought into the rhetoric <laughs> i was going to gigs anyway even before punk came along in 1976 i was already going to loads of gigs i used to buy all the music mags you know new music express sounds you know uh, melody maker and because i mean and i could afford to as well because i'd had a, i already had a job you know i'd be working as you say i was hardly one of the kids you know, that we were supposed to be talking to. You know, I was 19 when I started sniffing the Sniffing Glue fanzine, but I'd been working since 1974. I worked for two years in a bank, William yeah. Zinglin's bank. So I had a regular income, so I could afford to... I was... I must say I was really happy with the music scene. You know, I mean, even when I sort of went off a prog a bit, because, you know progressive rock you know Slate and palmer yes bands like that they became a bit overblown but then there was all this other cool stuff coming out the states you know like people like nils lofgren neil young was still putting out great music i love people like little feet leonard skinnage you know playing like a southern rock i loved all that stuff there was some great great rock music you know dylan had only just put out um blood on the tracks probably his greatest album you yeah. know that came out in about 75 so there was a load of stuff you know springsteen yeah, all that absolutely. sort of stuff. There was, it was, it, what was going on was really cool anyway. But of course, then I started reading about the, you know, the punk scene coming out of New York, you know, the Ramones, Patty Smith television. Oh, this looks interesting, you know. So it was another layer of great stuff, really, at that point. Uh, until it got, I guess, after a while, it started getting not political in a sense, but we started making these judgments about what prog was and what rock should be but that really only came in later i mean i was happy as, as you probably know in the first in the first um issue of sniffing glue i was talking about blue Esther Cole. you were talking about blue Esther Cole. and todd rungren yeah, well, right. I mean, yeah, and Todd Todd Rundgren's absolutely fair and i think you know i'm i'm i was flashing back to my childhood and so i was at slightly the different end if you had sort of two or three years on some of the you know, let's say the 16 year old, you know, I was, I was three years behind and, but because mm. I'd always been into music, I, I'd only gotten to like a handful of concerts and they're all big concerts, obviously. But yeah, if you yeah. love music, you find something to love. And Absolutely. sometimes my sort of take on it, because it happened to me like a, a, a solid year after it happened to you, sort of just realizing there is something new here and I, I so want to be a part of this. This is this is you know sort of more my generation. I was younger than those the, the bands, but yeah, it's like course, yeah. uh, you know I was feeling it, and then you gradually yeah. realize, oh, I yeah, I'm speaking for myself here, but it was a it wasn't overnight. It was a gradual realization that you know what I don't want to listen to these nine minute songs anymore. I'm enjoying this like breath of fresh air. That's like. You know, I'd always been into the Who from the '60s, and it's like suddenly I've got these bands that's that are right. clearly yeah. Yeah. influenced by them, and even replicating them. And this is the music that speaks to me. Now, it took me a lifetime 
genuinely to get back around to appreciating some of those nine minute songs. And I don't really regret that because, because, uh, you know, I do think we needed that something fresh, something new, and you helped do your part to, to provide that. But as you've, you, it's very evident when you look at your your writing about Glory Sokolt, for example. We were all everybody was trying to just find the music that they that they loved. I remember the bigger kids on the football terraces; they were the ones who got into the Ramones, probably like you. But they were into Glory Sokolt. They were clutching for anything that they yeah. could find that felt remotely straightforward rock and roll. You know. Yeah. Well, what changed it for me, I've got to say, because I was happy. I mean, if you'd have been managed to be a fly on the wall in my bedroom in probably August, September 76, I was probably playing the Ramones, but I'd probably play a Deep Purple album as well. You know, listening to a bit of Bowie. I was playing the other stuff as well, a bit of Neil Young. Why yeah. would you stop listening to Neil Young? You know, probably his greatest run of albums. Tonight's the night on the beat, Zuma. Oh, yeah. you know, I'm not going to listen to that shit anymore. You just wouldn't do that. It's great music. But I think it was, what did it for me was I started talking to other people, like like when we sat down with The Clash and we interviewed The Clash and they were coming out of all this stuff, you know, anti-flares, anti-old music, you know, all this sort of rhetoric, which turned out to be hot air in the end. But then, you know, with the pistols, with the I Ate Pink Floyd T-shirt, it was just the whole atmosphere at the time was like, yeah, let's slag off the oldies. So I think you see that in Sniffing Glue. At first, I'm sort of like, oh, it's just great music. We're going to have fun and that. And by issue four or five, it's like a real social sort of like, you know, it's like a war going on between us and the oldies sort of thing. You know what I mean? So I think it was because of the scene I was hanging out in, I started getting influenced away from the older stuff. I mean, I, and the sad thing is, by halfway through 77, I didn't have any of my old records anymore. I had this amazing <laughs> record collection. Uh, I sold yeah. it all because I bought into this, like, you know, the, the idea of the year zero. Punk comes along and it's year zero, you know. Oh, apart from Bowie, we'll let Bowie and Roxy in. They're all right. But yeah. the rest of them can all start off. Cause so, you know what I mean? And it was like you said. Probably, I mean, it didn't take me as long. Probably about four or five years later, I said, oh, why did I sell my Frank Zappa albums? Why did I sell my Neil Young albums? You know what I mean? Because what a fool, you know. But it, it was just, once you're in that, you know, you said once you were part of the scene, it was just everyone was encouraged, everybody else. And the other thing is, of course, you sometimes didn't like to say what you actually liked. You wanted to go along with the crowd. So yeah. there's no way you, you sort of say to Johnny Lydon or something like, well, actually, I quite like, you know, Machine Head by Deep Purple because you didn't want that reaction. So you sort of played along with it, you know what I mean? So I think mean, everyone was doing a bit of that because, I mean, let's face it, we know now Johnny Lydon's a big, like, Van der Graaf Generator fan and all that. You know, we, obviously, we all like the older music because of the age we were. Yeah, was he was mass. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So, didn't mean to in, in, interrupt there. We can't see each other, so it's uh, it's uh, not the usual call. But he was he's been very from day one. He's always been outspoken about his love of Can, of Captain Beefheart. That's, right. That's um, right. Yeah. You know, the idea that everybody just picked up guitars and had never heard a band before is obviously you know yeah. rubbish. But, but, but this, yeah. Go no, ahead. but I was going to say this is but everyone was joining in and sort of trying to catch people out. It's like, I mean, it was like, remember the NME used to have that teasers bit, didn't yeah. they? When it's sort of like, you know, sort of like, sort of in a way, what was it, like a, a scandal sort of bit, wasn't it? Or a tittle-tattle sort of thing, you know? And one bit is that like I, I was caught wearing this T-shirt. It was There was this fancy 
Latin at the time. It was about West Coast music. It was about the Grateful Dead, Quicksilver, Messenger. It was called Dark Star. Brilliant fans. I forget who wrote it. But I had a T-shirt. And it actually appeared in the paper. It said, you know, Mark Perry caught wearing a Dark, t uh, dark <laughs> Star T-shirt. You know, a magazine about Grateful Dead and West Coast hippies. Is that a summer news story? But that's the atmosphere was like at the time, wasn't it? They sort of try to catch you out. You know, shock horror. It's reveal, you know. Mark Perry likes the Grateful Dead as that's some like massive scandal, you know. I have struggled with the dead, and you have to bear in mind I ended up living in Woodstock, so I I yeah, well, am I you too, surrounded yeah, you too, by deadheads, and and it's been one group I have still struggled with. I have I have a whole piece to write coming up soon about um, revisiting prog rock because I just. Uh, uh, some people know, listen to this show, I, I do uh, show directing with the Rock Academy here. So I work with kids doing, putting on music shows. It's fantastic. Oh, it's, right, yeah. it's utterly wonderful. And I, I'm, I'm literally yeah. the rehearsal director putting on the show. There's a, there's a few of us because it's quite a, a successful place. But we just did a prog rock show. And what fascinates me is that the kids who are massively into the prog rock songs are the same kids who will happily do a grunge set and a punk rock yeah. set and a, a a hardcore punk set you know for them it's all music this is what's really interesting they just want to play practice their chops jump around yeah. you know they don't they they don't have that distinction of um this is in, uncle, in some this ways is in some ways i'd say two things i'd say in some ways that's healthy of course it is right but when you're young and you're part of a gang, you're part of this like movement, it's quite cool to but to sort of make those choices. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you don't want to kill anyone over it, but you know, like when you have your mod or your punk and all that, it sort of really matters. It matters what clothes you wear, doesn't it? It matters what bands you're listening to, where you want to be seen. So, but it, you know, you don't want it to be divisive. You know what I mean? But. You know, generally I'd go to, especially the age I am now, you know, you listen to what you think's cool. You know, so much music out there. It's great and that. But, you know, there was nothing to be, as you remember, probably remember, there's nothing like being part of that scene at the time, right at the sort of epicenter of it. It was like nothing like it at all. You know, nothing, nothing like it. I think just to be to be able to say, you know, you were part of a, a scene, however however good or, or naff it looks in in uh, in the rearview mirror it was still just like you know probably the, probably the best time of your life it kind of should be um Absolutely. let's talk about let's talk about the fanzine aspect of this um you know i'm going to summarize because i because i've read it so much and and it, the story's never changed you know the ramones were coming over you'd, you'd bought the first album you're massively into them you go you're shopping at rock on uh, I think the market store, and you go to them and say, is there a magazine for music like this? They say, no, it looks like you better start one. And lo and behold, you go off and do it. Were there, because you are known for putting together the first punk fanzine, were there other music fanzines that you were able to look at that said, well, I'm not the only person who's going to go out and start a fanzine about a certain kind of music. Was there any inspiration for you Beyond, you know, rather than being in opposition to the music papers and starting a fanzine, was there anything you could look at that said, yeah, that, that tells me a little bit what to do? Well, well I, I think, yeah, I mean, obviously the major ones, there was a two, the two American mags, because obviously the first UK, you know, we'd, Punk had already been out for like a year and a bit, hadn't it? You know, yeah. John, John Holstrom's Punk magazine. So copies of that were coming over to the UK. Plus, the other one I really liked was Greg's, uh, Greg Shaw's um, Who Put the Bump. 
Yeah, which again was more of a was more of a nostalgia mag, but still really cool. The way it was put together, a real fan fan approach, you know, but more more obviously uh, professionally looking. But the one, the UK one, I really liked, which sort of gave me the idea that you could do, you could knock up a magazine, so to speak. Although it was really nice was Brian Brian Hogg's uh, Bambalam. His magazine. I don't know if you ever saw Bamba. No, I I did. That was Brian's magazine out of Scott. I mean, basically, it was a list of like it was like a sort of you know the sort of list you get in record collectors of like you know singles and it was like a discography type list. Most of it was that you know, but it was a it was a it was something that I could look at and think, well, I could do that. You know, I could do it because it was just you know black and white paper and all that it looked like it'd been knocked together on a photo a photocopier. You know, so so that was a big influence on me. I mean, I've always I spoke to Brian a number of times over the years, and I've always told him he was like massive influence on me. You know. Yeah. Okay. So that that one I don't know, and maybe I'm going to go off and see if on 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 the web I can at least find a couple of covers of it so that we can. Uh, well, kind well, of... the, the best the best the best issue he ever did. He did like a a, a flaming groovy special, discography uh-huh. like and chat and that. You know, and obviously that's where he gets the name from. Bamba was a flame a song that flaming groovy's covered, and it so it was a bit so that was like a big. But yeah, it's it's. He went on to, Brian went on to do that Strange Things Are Happening, didn't he, magazine and some other stuff, Van Crusoe and all that. He works on a few things, Brian, over the years. Okay. Was, um, where, check it where, out. Where did Zigzag sit in your... Um... Oh, yeah. Well, that was going to be my second UK yeah. one. Well, then called Zigzag, you know, because Zigzag, although it was, it, was in, it was in the magazine racks, wasn't it? It was like a... But it was very, very laid back. It was like the style of it. A lot of it was actually written out, wasn't it? Handwritten. Very nicely handwritten by probably Pete Frame or something, wasn't it? So yeah. a, lot, a lot of that was, it was yeah, when that Chris, was nice. I, I, I really liked Zigzag when Chris Needs took it over and, oh, and actually did. Well, Chris, Chris snuck in because when obviously I started sniffing glue, Zigzag was still Zigzag. You know, it was still a great magazine and the way they did it. But then as the punk scene started, Chris Needs got his, they originally they gave Chris uh, like a bit in the middle, like a fanzine bit. And then after a few issues, because of this, you know, the way Punk was taking over everything, you know, he ended up taking over the whole magazine, didn't he? But yeah. At first, they were just letting him have a few pages of like a fanzine type bit in the middle. And then within a few issues, they'd sort of taken over the whole thing, you know. Right. So you kind of knew to call this a fanzine is what I'm get, getting. It wasn't oh, yeah, like... Abso- re- abso- yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There was a bit, and I knew vaguely, because I was like into comics and all that, and I knew, God, how did, would you know stuff about the internet? I can't remember how you knew stuff. <laughs> I can't remember how you knew. How did we find out? But, you know, about stuff that's like underground, and you know, but there were like sci-fi fanzines, weren't there? fanzines about i mean there was a long-running marvel comics fanzine i, I forget the go did it now but that, you know that was going on i'm sure i might have seen a couple of uh, copies of that knocking around in comic shops and that, yeah you know so there'd always been fanzines about these little marginal interest things these little underground going there was probably a reggae fanzine yeah there probably know, was yeah probably can't remember this and uh, maybe blues uh, i mean rock on records yeah. They kept, they also kept a lot of these. I mean, not that I probably bought any, but there was, you know, because of the rock and roll scene and rock on were very much from that sort of R&B rock and roll thing, weren't they? They came from. And I'm yeah. sure there was something like dusty old mags about Chicago blues and stuff like that knocking around that I'd probably seen, you know. 
Yeah, so they were in, an important part for you because uh, from what I've seen and what you've written about, it it it, you, it does seem to have been pretty. I, I hate to say it, it's quite easy for you. It it's like yeah, you 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 typed out. Yeah, well, most of us had a typewriter somewhere in the house. You typed a bunch. <laughs> You scrawled out the headlines, you know, in black felt tip, like like you would. And if I'm right, um, you had a girlfriend at the time that was able to run it off either at work or somewhere else. Is that all correct? Yeah, yeah, Louise. Yeah, Louise Edwards, she did the first. I mean, I think she only managed to do about 10 copies because she did it in her work. <laughs> I think because that was her job at work. So she, got the, and she knocked a few out for me, you know. So right. it was those, it was those initial copies. Then I took them to Rock On shop and said, look, I've done this fanzine. Here I am. You know, what do you think? And then they, they, they gave me money for more. So that I was, I, I think I only, Louise only did that first run for me in her office. After that, obviously they gave me the money to do more. And, you know, there used to be those sort of photocopy shops, didn't they? Little printing shops all over London and that. So it was easy to go in one of those and get little stuff knocked up, you know. It, it sort of was the problem I always had with photocopying um, was that it didn't get cheaper. You know, like once no. you print it, <laughs> well, it right. didn't like like a hundred copies was ten percent cheaper than sort of one copy, and I understand yeah, why yeah. because it's a process, and that was why no, with, right. with jamming, I was really keen to get to the point where I could actually do litho printing, so that yeah. so that we could actually afford, you know bring the cost down and put more pages in. But because mm. you were so new on the scene, it sounds like you did those ten copies. Rock on took them, and then. Then they're probably saying, "Well, you should go here. You should go there." Or you figured it out for well, yourself. Yeah. Well, rock, rock on. Actually, so I mean, they got another fifty, and they took the lot. I mean, because rock on, like um, at the time in London, there was rock on. The other one was Bizarre Productions. They were called in Pressure, and they were the guys. They distributed the records. So like Sky Dog Records coming in from France and that. That sort of did Flaming Groovies. Iggy, they did Iggy Pop Sing. Yeah. That stuff coming over from the states, like. Or alt records, things like that, you know, they would distribute those. So, so rock on in a perfect place to, to the sniffing glue started to get all, all around the UK, like because as they'd sell their records up to Manchester, Birmingham, whatever, sniffing glue would go, you know, more. so that's how it started growing. And then a, another big thing that happened to me was I spoke to the guys at Virgin, yeah. you know, Virgin at the time, they had a shop at that time, they had a shop in a basement. In where the Virgin Megastore ended up, but they used to be in the basement of that, um, yeah. or on top of it, up or down, I don't know. Anyway, but I, I, I spoke to, I spoke to Branson himself, and of course he then took some. So it didn't take time, uh, as you know, it, with the punks, and it was it grew so fast, you know, from that from that Ramones coming over July the fourth, seventy six. Between that and Christmas, you know, the anarchy tour, the yeah. anarchy tour that after it got banned, it just grew, you know, almost within that first six months, the music press was full of it. It was on TV, shock horror. It was everywhere. And cool, because we were like the premier fanzine, we, we, you know, we grew with it sort of thing, you know. So it was, I, I, I know this is a really trite thing to say, but it is, if, there's, if, if ever there's been a case of being in the right place at the right time, it's me and sniffing glue. It is just totally that, you know, because sometimes people come out and say that, yeah, really? But with me, it really was, yeah, definitely Absolutely. in the right place. Because probably only another month and someone else would have come up with the idea. I think you're absolutely right on that. Somebody else would have come up with the idea. And, um, 
I think also it, it probably helps that you just did have a couple of years on the scene. I mean, you were probably more or less Johnny Johnny Rotten's age. You know, you you weren't the sixteen year old kid. You just oh, had man. enough. You just had enough there to know how to be on the scene, put the mag together, um, and 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 have a bit of musical knowledge. And and yeah, I think all of that absolutely paid off. You know, looking back at that first issue. Well, and we're not going to go over every issue. We, do, we absolutely don't have time. But what jumps out is, you know, is your love of the Ramones. This is this is the groundbreaking band. And I do remember, I you know, very clear memories. They're not fake memories. My, my older friends on the football terraces were into the Ramones very, very quickly. And they had also, you know, they were people who were searching somewhat. It, it was suddenly like, oh, this is music that speaks to the energy that we have. And mm-hmm. so it's the Ramones that, that that do it. Your love of the Ramones just sort of like shines through. But what you get on these first, well, actually you get it all the way through, but you just get this energy. It's you, Mark, more than it is anybody else who writes for you, for, for Sniffing Glue. It's just... Yeah you're just writing with this energy and for all of it's like naive and it's not necessarily good English. It's all just embodies punk. It's just sort of, you know, what you're writing is like, you know, we've got a scene going. There's a bunch of good people around. We're calling ourselves punks. It's bloody great. There's loads of punks around at gigs. You should check out this band. You should check out that band. Like music's fun. London's brilliant. And, and it just jumps from the pages, doesn't it? It does, yeah. We were trying to, I mean, because after a while, I remember I did that, uh, uh, I can't remember issue four or five. Well, I think it's my finest moment, I've got to say. <laughs> it's when I said, anarchy in the ranks, you know, <laughs> flood the market with punk writing. Yeah. And people did. <laughs> it's yeah. like nuts. When you look back now, it's like, how would that happen now? But it, it actually happened because, you know, because I knew Jeff, obviously, Travis and all that lot. And they did, you know, in a few weeks. And they got hundreds of fanzines. Oh, can you sell my vegan? You know, Mark Perita told us to go out and do it ourselves. And it was like nuts. So to have that, I'm sort of really proud that we had that sort of, not like, you know, whatever we said they're going to do, but we, they caught the enthusiasm. They, they caught on to how enthusiastic we were about it. And we managed to pass that on to others who then went and did their own thing. You know what I mean? Because the good thing about fanzines, Everyone did it in their own little way, so they were all unique. Even the second one, you know, um, Ripped and Torn that Tony Drayton did out of Scotland. Yep. You know, it, it was unique. It was Tony. It was it was so Scottish. It was unbelievable. You know, and Adrian with like 48 Frills and all the others that came out. They all had that unique identity. So, it, it, it but it was it was that enthusiasm, just like waves, wasn't it? It, it sort of like it rippled out and sort of like affected everybody. You know how exciting it all was. Yeah, one one hundred percent, and that that like I say, that's what really, really, really carries through. There's one thing I have to ask you about because I mean, you printed every page, including the ads that you didn't like, and I think there is a lot to be said for the fact that uh, you know having sort of corporate ads really messed with the magazine, the fanzine. Let's sorry, it, messed, sorry. it messed with me. It messed with me because as you, if you, you know, your sign how enthusiastic it was. Because I was always very honest, you can see as we get to issue 12, how I started getting a bit disenchanted with it all and I started going off it. And I was I didn't hold back. I actually said that in the pages of Sniffing Glue. I was getting a bit, you know, fed up with it all, really. You know what I mean? So, uh, yeah. again, it was all about honesty. It was all about, you know, this is what we are. This is what we think, you know. I fought against those ads so much. It was like, 
you know, but I was trying to be a sort of team player and that. So I let Harry Miloski, who was like brilliant, you know, our business manager on the glue, he was like, I wouldn't be able to do it without him. But he sort of, yeah, I sort of gave in on that and I sort of wished I hadn't now, you know what I mean? But yeah, I know, you know it's luckily, always. Luckily, I managed to end it because what I was scared of is I'd go out and then someone else would come in, like Danny would say, well, let's keep it going. And I'm glad he didn't, you know what I mean? When I left, when I walked, it ended, which is what I wanted. Yeah, that's in, that that's important. Um, at my at my end, I kept jamming going a bit too long, but that, this is not about jamming. But I do want to say that first issue, you you've actually got these reviews where you're you you have been able to nail the bands. I mean, you're reviewing the one hundred and ones, which of course is Strummer's band. You've you've got Captain Beefheart, who we mentioned was a big influence on Johnny. You've got Eddie and the Hot Rods. You've got Television. You've got the Runaways. But what you wrote about the Runaways. Um, I mean, it's in there. You know what you wrote. Um, you've, you've, I can't remember. <laughs> all right, I'm going to read it to you. I've got two reasons for reading oh, no. it to you. Um, it's, here's your first paragraph. I've always hated girl bands, singers, etc. Rock and rolls for blokes, and I hope it stays that way. Girls are good for one thing and for one thing only. I was worried when I read that part, Mark, but then it says <laughs> going, going shopping for glue. So yes. how much yes, of that is tongue-in-cheek and how much of it was, the, the, I want to be honest with you, the sexist society we grew up in? Like, I, I think a lot of it was the, I mean, it's a gag, obviously, you know what I mean? There's like, you know, as you say, there's that sort of punchline is like, not like, you know, get in the bedroom, darling, or cooking your yeah. dinner. It's like shopping for glue. So that's the gag. So there were, there was that. It was sniffing glue is quite funny because... Me, me, particularly Steve Mick as well, Steve Micklep, who helped me yeah. out on some of the late ones. But we were like avid, you know, uh, readers of Mad Magazine, you know, mm -hmm. that comic magazine out the States. Yeah, and we were into things like the Marx Brothers, Lenny Bruce and all that. So we were really up on that. So we actually, a lot of it was tongue in cheek. But saying that, when I read, some of it is embarrassing, particularly my view of women, I think, because I did have, you know, I was from like, you know, South East London, a white working class area of London that was a pretty rough place, you know what I mean? I mean, you know, God help if he came out as gay or anything like you get the shit kicked out, you sort of thing, you know what I mean? You would have been thrown out. So I, I think, although I was a more, more sort of a liberal type person, a more sort of socialist type person, you know, an open person, I think I still had, I was, I hadn't quite got rid of that, you know what I mean? So bits of that seeped out, you know what I mean? I mean, there's one bit in there. I don't know if you've seen that bit where there's a... It, I mentioned that a girl wants a right for sniffing glue. Yeah. And I, I say like so, but don't worry, I'll check her writing before it gets seen by a human. I mean, it's, it's like really naff what I say, you know what I mean? So, yeah, it's just... But again, it's warts and all, isn't it? That's the way, you know, I took a, maybe a few months to get that out of my system, all that, and... But hopefully, you know, it is again. I'm honest about it. You know, I'd never like to send. Well, the fact, the fascinating thing for me about this, Mark, is that see, I'd I'd never seen those early issues until the uh, the first, the book came out in its original form, however many years ago that was. So I I had no experience of any of this. Sniffing glue had actually packed up by the time I started uh, started my fanzine. But um, you you're probably not going to remember this but there's you know i'm i'm going to have a memory of of this myself a few years later it felt like like 17 lifetimes later in january 84 my band uh, I had been, I had managed to talk the brand new channel 4 into doing a documentary on my band and um oh, yeah. and we we uh <laughs> 
we can, as a group, and I'd love to say that I was not um, the, the worst offender here, and I don't think I was the worst offender by any means, but we came out with so much sexist twaddle. And the idea had been, I had sold it to Channel 4 for this show, whatever you want, about the idea of us being more liberal with with girls these days. I was trying to basically say with this new Channel 4, isn't there something positive you can do instead of it's like all against the system? So there was a little bit of setting us up, but I'd forgotten in a way when selling this idea what my other band, my bandmates were like, and they just came out with the most ridiculous twaddle. And you wrote to me after it came out and you, you actually sent me a letter and said something like you hoped I'd learned a bit of a lesson from that. And I, I got those did. ideas. Who wrote you a letter? You did. <laughs> Honestly, because yeah. I guess we must have been in touch, and I, I, mm. I, I, I swear you did, and it, it, it was like, oh my god, I've just been called to the floor by Mark, my, by Mark P. <laughs> <laughs> but <It's... I> was... <laughs> but now another contradiction like that seems like I sort of learned my lesson, my own lesson. But another contradiction is about the stuff in the glue was that I actually called out Stiff because we were going to have the Stiff record, you know, yeah. all the guys at Stiff, um, you know, Jake and all that lot. They wanted to put an ad in Stiffing Glue for the Dam's first album. Mm-hmm. I went, they, they sent us the copy of, of the, the ad and it was like uh, gay adverts because they actually had the adverts on the label as well. They did one single with Stiff. Yeah, anyway, they had a picture of gay advert and they'd stuck her head on like a page three type body of a girl. And then they stuck gay's head on there and it said like, you know, gay says buy this album. And I actually refused to put it in. I said, no, no, I'll put this rubbish in. This is like sexist, you know, what you're doing, blah, blah, blah. So I actually got them to change the ad, you know, so to take off, to take out the naked lady. So so obviously I had some mold compass there that was like, you know, somewhere. Yeah, you you did. You obviously learned learned down the line. I, I was actually quite shocked when I read that Runaways review, but because of the gag, I, I, I was it was hard to know how it was hard to know how serious it is. But it does bring up another question. I have I have never seen you ask this question. So did you sniff glue? Well <laughs> only once. No what no what happened was <clears throat> this around might have been about October seventy six because I was it was when I was knocking around with Stephen Walsh. You know, Stephen Walsh, he, he, um, he did the Clash interview with me. Okay, And also, yeah. he was in a band later on, Stephen, a band called Manicured Noise. Yes. Quite, yeah. a, quite a cool band they were, anyway. But me and Stephen, my parents were away. They went on a holiday to, like, Benidorm or something, and I had the flat to myself. But, so me and Steve... We actually asked us, so what's it? I wonder what this sniffing glue business is actually like. And we did. And I always remember that we sniffed glue and we put the album we put on was Hendrix, Cry of Love. So me, <laughs> the only time I've sniffed glue is with Steve Walsh, you know, sniff glue to Jimi Hendrix sort of playing in the background. And all I can remember that we ended up with the worst headaches ever, mm-hmm. like the worst migraine type headaches and like vowed never to do it again. So that was my only, it was just an experiment. Like, you know, all talking about sniffing glue, we better try out sort of thing, but it was a big mistake. Yeah, so so really the whole, <laughs> a lot of what you've got there, you know, girls are only good for buying buying your glue and, you know, the mags, oh. you know, like, don't don't read this mag, use it for, uh, you know, dip it in some glue and sniff it. It's all, oh, it's like, all just having fun, isn't it, really? There was, there was, there was loads of, yeah, there was, you know, my, my favorite actually gag ever in sniffing glue. I didn't, I write, it was Steve Mickleff. Yeah. He said, he said, I think it was sniffing glue three and a half. He said, 
this issue is rare. Rip it up and it'll be rarer. <laughs> yeah, there it you go. It was genius. That, yeah. that was so Steve Micklev. That was like straight out. That was almost could have been taken straight out of Mad Magazine, you know. This issue is rare. Rip it up and it'll be rarer. Absolutely genius, you know. Yeah, you know what? Let's let's um, give credit, as you are doing right now, to some of the other people who are involved in the glue, because I was actually in touch with Steve Mick. Um, I've, I was trying to get an interview with you for a while, but I also, I also actually, to be honest, I didn't want to uh, have you on this fan team podcast first up. I, I kind of just, you know, I didn't want to be like starting at the beginning of punk fanzines. And so I actually, I think yeah. the timing has worked out. But I've, I've been in email contact with Steve Mick. You've mentioned Steve Walsh, and I did see that SW uh, next year clash interview, and I was a bit confused on that one. We've mentioned Danny Baker, and you've mentioned Harry. I always mispronounce his last name because I re. Uh, you Malowski. Need to... There you go. Malowski. Thank you. Malowski, yeah. Who was. Um, he was your photographer, correct? But do you want to just like, you were fortunate in that sense in that because you were first on the scene, you got a team together really quickly, didn't you? Because that's always the hardest thing with a fanzine. It's not, it's not that we all want to do it ourselves and have it only be us. But I just found I was the only one motivated enough to keep doing yeah. it and keep making well, sure it got to the printers. That was, that was yeah, why. I think it, the thing with me, I mean, the re reason Steve got it, because well, Steve Mickler was my, like, he was like my main buddy. He's my gig going buddy. You know what I mean? We used to go and see loads of gigs together and that, you know, he, I mean, he, you know, he, all that. So he was really into Floyd and stuff like Zappa and stuff. So we were all into that, you know, heady music and all that. So, yeah, when I got into the punk scene a bit, I think Steve wasn't there straight at the start. You know, he didn't really, but I took him along to a couple of gigs and he got excited. I think by issue three, I got him involved. I mean, the first thing Steve Miklev did was uh, we did the interview with the Damned because he loved the Damned, you know what I mean, and all that, because they were a bit, so he loved the captain, you know, so they were a bit scatty and all that. So, yeah, Steve was a great, and he had, I mean, Steve was a much, in a way, a much better writer than me. Because I always acknowledge that Steve sort of had a way of words better than me, but so yeah, Steve was really, and it was uh, Harry Malowski was actually Steve's friend from college. Because Steve got uh, went uh, was uh, sort of left school and got to college for a little while, and he met Harry there, and so he said, "Oh, I know this guy. He takes a lot of photographs," and that's how Harry got involved. You know, Harry Malowski. You know, so by sort of like the fourth and fifth issue, we were like there were three of us: me, Steve Mikalefa, uh, and Harry Malowski. And cause then I met, um, you know, uh, Miles Copeland. Yeah, of course. You know, after which is a slightly another story. But what that happened? Then I met Jill Fermanovsky, people like Eric Reckenberg, and suddenly, because again, the status is the first punk fanzine. You know, suddenly all these like and they were professional photographers, like Jill Fermanovsky, Eric Reckenberg, and that lot. Sheila Rock. They started wanting to give me photographs to go in the fanzine. So. So as you say, you know, by the sort of, the, you know, early 77, we had loads of people all wanting to get involved in that. It's even before Danny got involved, you know. So, uh, again, I think it's because we're the you know, right place at the right time. You know, you know what other person like fans in is going to have Jill Fermanovsky giving them photos for nothing. You know, I mean, it's brilliant, you know. Yeah, and and it's funny because almost everybody I, uh, I've, I've had on this show since since. Uh, restarting it as a pure fanzine podcast everybody including myself have our tales of woe about printing print costs and you know getting help and selling it and your story isn't that because you were first no. up 
you got given an office by Rough Trade, and I think then you got given an office by Miles Copeland. That's um, right. But get this, I didn't have to even worry about the printing because you know what was Harry's Malofsky's favourite for two things to do. He's <laughs> he's too favourite. This is serious because he used to joke him. He used to like taking photographs and like getting stuff sorted. That's what he used to say, Harry. <laughs> Get this sort of so if it was like driving a van, get because later on he used to help me out in the band, you know, he was like the main sort of road manager. He was just like a doer because he was like, I was like a builder type. So, so that was it. He, I said, Look, we, we need to get find another printer, leave it to me, Mark, you know. And like within a it's like he found a print in Cambridge, who used oh, yeah. to print sniffing, who used to print sniffing glue like in the evening. So, he had his normal job, this printer. And yeah. then Harry used to drive up there with a sort of like with the with the you know with my sort of artwork and that. And so this printer used to do it in the evenings. And so but Harry found him. God knows Harry found this bloke. So Harry, Harry, it was him. He's the one who sorted all that. So I didn't even have to worry about that. I could purely, and as you say, it's quite unique in the fanzine business to purely be able to just worry about what was going to go in it. You know, as the editor, I just had to worry about what we're going to write about. All the other stuff was taken care of, you know. It's a quite yeah. a privileged position to be in. It, it, it is. I've got, to, I've got to say that from my own perspective and the perspective of almost anybody else I know who's done a fanzine. And, and at least you're aware of that. Did you ever... Oh, absolutely. Um, did your Cambridge printer, did you have any, ever have any problems about getting something printed? Was there anything that, that raised anybody's hackles at all? No, no, he, he was fine. No, never Anything we wanted printed, you know, he was doing that. He actually, and the good thing about Harry was, and, you know, he had, Harry was good at making connections. Mm-hmm. You know, so, I mean, those days when it was the old phone book and that had come out, and the old printer, this printer, you know what I mean, all that. But Harry actually... He was brilliant because he, you know, Tony, we ended up doing stuff for Tony, you know, ripped and torn. That ended up being printed up there as well, the printer in Cambridge. And there was a couple of other things that Harry would get stuff done for people. It was brilliant, you know what I mean? So this sort of little network started and, could, you know, and that developed obviously with like Rough Trade, you know, they started doing more fanzines and obviously our own 40 products because by the end of 77, we'd started a company called 40 Products. So we started distributing indie records, fanzines and all that. So as we said before, as that scene grew, it just grew and grew and grew. Other people getting involved, distribution, that shops and stuff, you know what I mean? And it all, it all helped each other, didn't it? You know, the more records that come out, the more fanzines, it was all sort of feeding into itself, you know? I mean, growing in that way. Yeah, one hundred percent. And when did uh, where did you know Danny from? Well, Danny, and he was another school friend. You know, he right. was at school with me and Steve. You know, West Greenwich Secondary School. Now, I I left in nineteen seventy four. I went to work in a bank. But Danny, although he was in the same year as me, he'd already left the year before. He just, Danny Danny was really good at school. He's very bright kid and that. But he just wanted to get out there in the real world, you know. So he ended up working for in record shops and all sorts of stuff, you know. Um, so, yeah, I knew Danny from school. Now, Danny, because of the person he is, at first, actually, I read his book the other day. I checked it out again, what he said about the glue. But he sort of dismissed it because he, he, he oh, what's all this punk nonsense sort of thing, you know, because I'm in the real music sort of thing, you know. And he did have brilliant taste in music, you know. But, um after a while, when he saw it get a bit more successful, we started wanting to get an in, you know what I mean? So he ended up sort of coming along to a couple of gigs and then I'm um, writing some reviews, I think. And then I think by issue 10, he was like, he was, well, nominally the sort of editor of it in a way, you know what I mean? So, 
But at first, he was totally dismissive of the whole punk thing. And then sort of later on, he got involved in that way, you know. Yeah, and I mean, Danny, for, I've got listeners to this show around the world. And uh, Danny Baker, you know, he's a, he's, he's a British um, media personality. He's... he's He's a funny person. He's had a little bit of controversy in recent years, but but you know he's a well-known British media person. I don't know where, where, quite who to compare him to in the states because it's radio and it's yeah, TV. But um, I mean that's what people need to know there. But his taste in music was was always more about black music than than about punk. Oh and... God! And I say you know we talk about it like he was the first guy. Not just, uh, he was obviously soul, you know, uh, funk and stuff like that. But he was the first guy, like, I'd ever heard Todd Rundgren. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd go around, he's, uh, he was like, he, you know, he was like buying things like, you know, the the run on on input and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Like, loads of sort of like, which not weird shit, but sort of, um, what at the time, underground American music input stuff. You know what I mean? Sort of like, he'd, he'd come up with all this stuff. He really liked his songwriters. He was a big sort of like people like Tim Buckley fan, people like that. You know, UK wise, Nick Drake. He was, he's quite sophisticated. He's, he was never a prog fan or anything like that. I mean, Steve, we're happy with a prog rock fan. He was never in all that more of a singer songwriter sort of thing he was into. You know what I mean? You know, yeah. he was an early Springsteen fan and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Quite sophisticated taste for like a teenager. You know what I mean? He was all that hunting. And then he ended up working. He ended up working in, I don't know if you remember, One Stop Records in South Moulton Street, near Bond I... Street. It was a it was a big import shop that. So he'd always have sort of stuff early on import and that, you know. So, yeah, he really knew his music. You know, I think he looked down on punk in a way. Well, you get that impression. Bit... And I wanted to mention yeah. that cover of issue 10. It's very well known because it's this picture of the three of you that are involved at that point on the cover. It's a picture of you on the cover. And, and it's Harry, yourself and Danny. And Harry and Danny left and right, like profile shots. You're in the middle staring down the camera. And the other two look like, you know, they're, they're their profiles could have been taken in 1975 by their haircuts. Yours could only have yeah. been taken after 1976. So you had cut your hair, but your mates that you're doing the um, sniffing glue with had not. And I, you know, that's just an interesting thing to discuss because you actually reference in that uh, 100 Club special, you you reference, God, even I've gone and cut my hair short now, you know, there's something in yeah, there. Yeah, um, I- yeah. There was no judgment. I mean, we weren't, we weren't exactly like fashionistas, were we? The glue people, you know what I mean? It was like, I mean, Harry never, Harry never, you know, with the idea of him wearing punk clothes, Harry just was like a normal bloke. He used to wear, Harry used to wear one of those old duffel coats, you know, those RAF sort of coats. Yeah, very much like so. That's what he'd wear and knock about and that all the time. And, you know, I don't remember ever saying to Harry, like, sort yourself out. You can't, I mean, Again, because of the confidence we had, because other people might have gone, look, we need to look better. You know, you know these bands that probably told, like, the drummer to cut their hair or something, which did go on at that time, didn't it? You know, these people would join punk bands and be told you've got to cut your hair or you've got to stop wearing those flares and all that. That sort of yeah. thing went on, you know. But but I never bothered about that. I think we were really laid back about it. But I think because we were so confident. It's not as like we had to prove anything. I mean, everybody knew that Sniffing Glue was, like, the number one punk fanzine. It's not, we, it didn't matter what we looked like, did it? We'd already made our mark sort of thing, you know what I mean? And the same with Danny. I mean, Danny always, you know, Danny always based his look on, which always makes me laugh, David Essex. Yeah, yeah, Danny yeah, Baker, yeah. that was his look. That's that it, because in that... Sort of like, like, <laughs> 
in that in initial edition of the book of the compendium where you have this sort of somebody uh, looks like somebody interviewed you and Danny together and uh, and you mentioned you cut out the waffle this time Danny literally says I didn't want to cut my hair because I always thought I looked like David Essex <laughs> he literally <laughs> says that well he used to um he used to make out this is true it's actually you should pick up his book it's quite like the first the first volume of his book I forget what it's called now but it's quite interesting. But he actually says he used to lie when they sort of went out to discos and that. He'd lie, he'd lie to girls in order to get girls. It'd sort of say he was David Essex, his like younger brother. He'd lie. Apparently it worked. It worked. And he'd say, oh, David, yeah, David's doing a big show at the moment, but you know what I mean? I'm going to get together with him next week and that. You know, all it is. <laughs> it's funny, but that is, Danny had his own thing on that. But it was, I'm not saying, because, I find it hard about Danny, so I'm not really too critical with him, but there was a bit of Danny, he was such an opportunist. Mm-hmm. I, I think, although he might have not come into it, I think he soon quickly realised by having, getting in with the glue thing and becoming part of something, you know, straight away that was really important. I think he saw that as an in for himself. And of course, through Sniffing Glue, he met people like, you know, he met The Clash and that, he met like, you know, Tony at, enemy and stuff you know um i forget he's uh, tony parsons or tony, tony stewart parsons, NME. Yeah. got in with the enemy guys and all that and within i mean a few months to leaving uh sniffing glue he was working for the enemy so I, I think although he didn't come in it just for that i don't think because he was up for the he was up for the sort of the crack and all that you know it was because it was great laugh and you could get in the gigs for free and stuff like that so it was brilliant in itself but I definitely was part of Gar- uh, Danny that definitely saw it as a way to get further into the music business. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, I know. And I, a lot, I know, and I, I hear that. And I think a lot of us are often uh, just, you know, when we're young and enthusiastic, we're just like, let me in any any which way, what's going on? If your yeah, mate's doing yeah. something cool, you know, we've, we've all heard stories of uh, somebody putting a band together and only then does their, you know, their schoolmate turn around and go, oh, well, now you've got a band. Can I join? This looks like fun. Yeah. So that's <laughs> that's not that's not uncommon. One of the things um, about, an important thing about Sniffing Glue is you put out these 12 issues pretty much in the space of a year. And when you were talking earlier about the speed at which the scene moved, yeah, I think it's worth remembering when one is looking through these issues, or even if one isn't looking through these issues, they're coming at people pretty much every month you're managing to sell them every month and you're coming at yeah. people every so you can literally write you know um mm. hopefully they'll you know of, of a band like yeah you know i'm looking forward to seeing them next week at this gig I'll, I'll put that in the next issue and you would so we actually get the sense reading sniffing glue of the development one month you'll be saying to the damn sorry i missed your gig here the next month you'll be like everybody should check out the damn next month it's there's an interview next month they got a single out i mean it's like boom 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 the the speed at which the scene is moving and that you're on the top of it you know in the um hundred club special i think you review every band but a couple of issues later you review every band again and sort of say you know these are the bands on the scene and it is very much the who's who of punk isn't it yeah we did i think we we did a christmas special that sort of rounded it all up sniffing snow Mm-hmm. <laughs> which is a pretty stupid idea but it was a good way of sort of getting it all up to date and as you say we we did a sort of like a, a small dip with sort of like yeah what, london's burning with groups bands. that's it i'm looking that, at that's it. right yeah but it was i often i know it's not quite a diary but you know when people say when i'm trying to big it up yeah. i often say look forget about all these punk 
books, you know, written five years ago. If you really want to know what was going on in the UK punk scene, buy Sniffing Glue, Essential Punk Accessory, and that's all you need to know because that's almost like, a, as you say, a blow-by-blow account of what happened in that in that important year. You know, it's all there in black and white, and it, it's like a sort of a diary or a log, isn't it, of what, what exactly went on and what records get put out. You know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. That issue, that sniffing snow issue, I'm looking at it right now, and I mean, you've actually got a lot of the groups in a enormous priority, which is fascinating. It's, you, you, the order is, you know, the Sex Pistols, the Clash, the Damned. Buzzcocks, Generation X, Subway Sect, Eddie and the Hot Rods, Eater. And just going on those, the, the, those last couple of bands, you were, you were a pretty big Eddie and the Hot Rods fan. And, um, you know, that pub rock scene that was happening before punk, it's, you know, I wasn't privy to that. But on one hand, it's easy to knock it because it wasn't necessarily original. Oh, and, no. But on the other hand... You couldn't knock it. On the other hand, it like I mean, I remember loving Eddie and Hall. I had their live at the Marquee EP before I was able to get punk records. Um, you know, there was it was a part of a Back to Basics movement, wasn't it? That's what it was. No, absolutely. Doing. And let's face, you know, when these people come up, but I, I when I do this, these people say, "Oh, you know, the sort of genesis of punk or Godfather punk." They usually talk about, don't they, the MC Five, and they mm-hmm. they talk about the Stooges. And they talk about one of my foes, you know, the flaming groovies and all that, the energy they had. Well, there's not much different than any of that lot to like early in the Hot Rods. I mean, what a great live band they were, Eddie and the Hot Rods. I mean, they could blow the Sex Pistols off the stage. You know, Eddie and the Hot Rods at their best, you know, live at the Marquee or like any of those small gigs, you know, late, uh, late 76, early 70. They were absolutely the best live band in London, bar mm-hmm. none. I mean, absolute brilliant. You know what I mean? You know, just so much energy. Yeah, and most of it was old R&B songs. Most of it was old covers. But, I mean, the energy of that. And, again, the other band like that is Dr. Philgood. Anybody who saw Dr. Philgood between 75 and 77, I mean, it's got to be one of the best bands you've ever, live bands you've ever seen. You know what I mean? Yeah, and not that... one, not one song was about, not one song was about changing the world or anarchy in this, blah, blah, blah. They were just a great rock and roll band. You know what I mean? So that was it. You know, it was a great it was a great scene. I love that scene because without that, I don't think punk would have happened, really. No, I, I can't see it. Is, is yeah. It opened it opened people's ears to a more basic type of music that people like the Dan, the Pistols, the Class sort of jumped on top of and they could go with it. You know what I mean? It's, so it was an important part in that sort of transition from the stadium rock thing into punk new wave. Yeah, it really was. I didn't have the uh, the benefit of seeing any of those bands in their prime, um, and and I wish I, I wish I had done. But I know the importance of Doctor Feelgood really cannot be underestimated because, again, you know, my, a lot of my mates in South London, your South London as well, they 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 turned pretty quickly from because I really do think they were reaching. Everybody was into the Who and the Stones to an extent, yeah, and they yeah, wanted yeah. they wanted their their loud basic rock music. And suddenly, they were listening to Doctor Feelgood, so that when the Ramones came out, they were ready for the Ramones. Yeah. You know, they were no, more absolutely. ready than people who hadn't heard Doctor Feelgood. Yeah. And uh, uh, you know, I mean, I still love uh, "Do Anything You Want to Do" by the by at the Rods as they shortened their name. It's just a great power pop song. You cannot you cannot <laughs> no, deny absolutely. it. You can't. To what extent were you 
what was your view on the on the weekly papers while you were doing this? Were you in, did you see yourself in opposition, or were you mates with a lot of the people there and just? No, thought... no we were we were mates. I mean, uh, you know, they were really important. I mean, two people in particular were really helpful with uh, you know John Ingham from Sounds mm-hmm. and Caroline Coon from Melody Maker. In yeah. fact, funny enough, what we've just been talking about, I met them two on in the van. We went because of the success of Sniffing Glue, the first issue. I got invited to go to a gig with Eddie and the Hot Rods, their manager. I forget his manager's name at the time. Anyway, he got in touch with me. I said, do you want to come to this gig? We're playing in Hastings. Come down in the van, you know, because mm-hmm. they wanted to be in Sniffing Glue. And in the van as well was John Ingham Sounds and Caroline, the melody maker. So I met them and they'd see, I couldn't believe it because, I, you know, they'd seen the fans in. And I was saying, oh, we love it. You know, it's brilliant and all that. And I just felt... That was one of the first moments I thought, wow, I'm part of this now. You know, I'm a, I'm a writer, I'm a journalist. I'm sitting with the journalist at the back of the van. I can't believe it, you know. So, yeah, so, and we knew everybody. I was always in and out of the, I was always in and out of Sounds Office, Malibet NMA. I was always in and out of their offices and that, you know, because especially when I started working with Jill and that, because, you know, Jill Fomalowski was, was selling photos to all these people as well. Erica the same. So we all knew, and I knew people like later on Gary Bush and all that. You know, obviously I know, you know, most of the writers, you know what I mean? Charlie Murray and all that lot, you know what I mean? Chris I, Needs at Zigzag, you know. Yeah, I know you did one or two pieces for um for, for the papers, but I were did. you tempted, were you tempted to just sort of jump and become... Because going, you know, fanzine to music press is the most common journey. No, no, I did. A funny, one funny, I did, I did do this really. It's a funny looking back, but we remember Iggy Pop. He put out the Idiot, brilliant album. You know, oh yeah, brilliant Bowie album. Produced the Idiot, and they did the tour. They did the tour on Bowie played keyboards. Uh, you know, with with Iggy, and I think it was the advert supporting them. So it was a really cool show. We went to. We went to the Rainbow. I got free tickets. Melody Maker gave me free tickets to the show to review the gig for Melody Maker. So mm-hmm. I was like, oh, wow. But I didn't, I wasn't, so I wasn't convinced about Iggy. I thought he was playing it too safe. It all looked a bit like Cabaret. So I said so in, in, in the magazine. And the headline they put about the review was, Wake Up Iggy, it's 1977. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, it was a bit of a slag off, like, you know, so. And I had people saying to me, what do you slag off Vicky for? He's a hero. And I was like, well, it was a bit iffy, you know what I mean? And all that is so, you know, there were, I never really, and the worst, even a worse thing happened to me was this, actually it was a bit earlier. I got taken to, I actually went with John Ingham. We went to see Wings, you know, Paul McCartney's oh, Wings yeah. at the um, at Wembley which was a brilliant charm, and it was like, the problem is, and I got to meet, meet Paul, it's the only Beatle I've ever met, afterwards yeah. we went backstage, because we all had, and I got to meet Paul McCartney and Linda and all that, and I couldn't believe it, I was in like, and it was like a massive spread, I was yeah. like in heaven, you know, as an old rock fan, you're, st- you're backstage at Wings, so I wrote the review, and it was a good review, I sort of bigged it up. Oh, great. And the encore was brilliant. They ended with yesterday and, you know, whatever, hey, June. You know, I was bigging it up. Of course, Sounds took one look at it and refused to print it. <laughs> they wanted you to be the angry young punk, right? <laughs> they, wanted me to, they wanted me to slag it off. They wanted yeah. me like a punk's eye view of, you know, the old the old uh, school or whatever, you know? And yeah. I just, I, I just, I was really upset about that. I thought, 
really, you know, the only reason they took me there was to, as some sort of dupe that I had to, you know, be the punk writer. I, I just, no, I didn't like that. So that, I had, a, as I say, I'm trying to say, I had a couple of experience of sounds, melody maker that I didn't really come out of it very happily. I just had a, you know, I just like being my, in control of what I was doing myself. I, I, I just didn't like it the way they were sort of, you know, trying to sort of, you know, sort of get me into this, play this punk writer role, you know what I mean? And well, I, th- I wasn't I th- having it. You know? No, no I, I actually think, Mark, you're hitting on something quite important there because although you were getting on fine with the writers, and listen, I got on really well with a, a, a hell of a lot of freelance writers and staff writers. That's ne- yeah. never, never been an issue. But you are getting there at the cynicism of the music press and, yeah, and yeah, the hidden, yeah. hidden agendas or yeah, you know, the, yeah, yeah. from from editors and this stuff you know that was what really ticked me off the whole build them up knock them down thing and the idea that you send somebody else out to do a hatchet job the reason fanzines are, were called fanzines is because we didn't really want to waste our time on the negative because no. there was so much good stuff to write about you had the right as you certainly did yourself famously to you know be upset if the clash signed to cbs but that's because you were into the clash that's because you were part of the scene not because somebody was setting you up to write negatively about something i do truly honestly to this day think that's what distinguishes fanzines it doesn't mean they can't be critical but they're coming when they're critical they're coming to it because they're fans not because they're cynical that's right they wouldn't go out of their way i wouldn't have gone out of my way to to listen to a Wings record at the time, just to slag it off, you know. Mm-hmm. You get these other, this is the other weird thing you get. Again, because of Sniffing Glue, where it was in the old wherever pantheon at the time, we, I'd get I'd get inquiries from record companies that they used to say, like, I'd get a call, for example, from CBS at the time, and they said, oh, here, Ian Hunter's got a, a new record out, and he's doing a tour. Would you like to interview him in Sniffing Glue? You'd get you get these invites from record companies to to interview their sort of stars. Yeah. You know these older people, and I refused. I said, no. Why would I want to talk to Ian? Up there? Well, Ian. I said, no, I'm not interested because again, it's like they were trying to sort of shoe on Ian under into some what they thought was a fashionable magazine. Yeah, uh, sure. Again, I just that wasn't that's what I wasn't what we were about. We, I mean, some magazines probably loved to be able to interview Ian Hunt. Ian or whatever. Uh, um, I want to ask you a couple of, of key questions. Leaving aside the last issue when you put the flexi disc on there for, for your band Alternative TV, what were your sales at before that? Do you remember? Um, yeah, they were, they were creeping up. Um, I think the, yeah, around the issue 10, 11, we probably put about 12, 15,000. Yeah, it's a hell of and a lot. And then for the final issue, we did twenty thousand. So, so it was it was creeping up. Yeah, it was just a the yeah, because they were going to the states and that. You know what I mean? And and all over sort of thing. You know, I mean, a lot of them might have ended up in the tip somewhere. I don't know. Yeah, they might have been, you know, chucked away. But but that that's what the numbers were. You know, we, yeah. as, I, as we said, I was quite. We were quite bold with the last issue. We did like twenty thousand. You know. Yeah, we were able to sort of make. Yeah, it we were building up. Forward. I mean, from the yeah, for that for the humble start of like probably, I mean, probably sniffing glue number one, the first issue, they probably crept up because we did a couple reprints. That probably kept up, crept up to 150, 200 maybe, and then each issue a bit more as it as it built up and that. 
I mean, it was bloody every everywhere. By the end of '77, it was like, I mean, the you know, the the time I was going off punk, I was fed up with the whole scene. It was getting more and more successful, wasn't it? You know, the moment it was, and I was like ready to jump shit sort of thing. You know what I mean? The more it's typical of me. I'm always doing that. I'm always, you know, as soon as something gets successful, I want to stop it. You know? Yeah, <laughs> I know. There's that's it a is. very it's a quite an artistic um, yeah. sab- self sabotage. I know it sounds a bit, and it's really old fashioned. I mean, again, I've only gone too long yet. It talked about time, but last year. We did this deal. Do you know you heard of Noah? Noah Clothing? They're a New York shop. No, but I know what you're about to get. So I yeah, don't know about did, the shop, but I know what you're but about we did to get. This, we did this sniffing glue. Have you seen it? We did yeah. seen this sort of deal with it. And they did it. And that part of it, and having interest from them, I was like, yeah, well, what are you up to? And they sort of said, look, you just do this on Will Pop on shirt. So I thought, well, I don't know how to do shirts. Yeah, we'll do it. You know what I mean? So I've done it, but I really pushed for them. I said, What's really important with sniffing glue is the purity of it. You know what I mean? We just got to keep that look, and that and that's what I've always been concerned with. That's why I didn't like ads, anything coming in from outside. It's so important, you know what I mean, to me to do that. So I, I've still got that approach now. You know what I mean? It's like, I mean, I joke that my bullshit detector is turned up to eleven, and any sign of any sort of like naffness or over commerciality, I just like shut it all down. You know what I mean? It's like. It's, um, I was, can I just say one last thing? Oh, it's, yeah, I've got I, a couple more things to ask you as well. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Well, let me just say this. I spoke to Pat. Do you know Pat Gilbert? Yes, I do. I know Pat well enough. Yeah, Pat, he's a great, good guy. Yeah, because really, I mean, he, he did a thing in the latest mojo with me. It's that hello, goodbye page. Oh, yeah. You know, so we did that. It's in the issue that's just come, just coming out, I think. But I said to Pat, and I was, he thought I was joking. I said, How can you work for these magazines now? And he said, What do you mean? Is it? I said, you said you, you know, there he's the guy. He's the guy who does those things. Like you know, they have like a Rolling Stone special mojo, and all they do is pull together old articles, yeah, yeah, and old reviews. And it's always like, and it always comes out when there's like a new record coming out, or they'll do a Who one, same Bowie, the same Fleetwood Mac, the same. And it's just like a, it's no creativity at all. And I said, how do you do that? He said, well, it pays the rent. He was really honest about it. It pays the rent. I said, but it's like complete lack of what has happened to like rock journalism what has happened to it that you're just churning out all this like this stuff that nobody you know telling anything that anybody knew about the rolling stones for god's sake it's just like dreadful you know well this gets back this actually does get back to where we where we uh came in without any doubt because there's the you know the, the, to the extent that there's a british music press now um a it's catering <clears throat> excuse me it's catering to older people and within catering to older people you have you genuinely do have magazines like prog rock classic rock and you know i guess whatever anybody's comfortable with about going over the past and you like like you've said you're really yeah. proud of the glue and you should be proud of the glue if i know for a fact like just because i hadn't been able to track down a copy i wouldn't have started a fanzine without sniffing glue i started it because there were fanzines punk fanzines and Yours was the one that started all these other fanzines. Like a lot of people, I didn't really have anything to go by. I I went by the John Savage piece in Sounds in September 77 that was a center page spread all about fanzines. I was just like, this looks utterly brilliant. Having now started buying these new wave records and and being into it and realizing there's music being made for for us, for kids, you know, know, teenagers. 
I want to do this. Yeah. And I knew that I knew that Sniffing Glue was the originator. And when I did interview you, and it was only about a year later, you know, the speed you were working at, Mark, you, you, you know, I came to you because that first alternative TV album was so brilliant. But you were about to drop vibing up the senile man, which yeah. took yeah. you yeah. right back. I mean, talk about a 180 degree turn. You literally went off and rejoined the hippie movement, didn't you with that? Yeah, yeah. Well, as I said about not worrying about what my mates were wearing clothes-wise, I didn't have any, I didn't feel restricted at all by the punk scene. I always found that a bit strange. You know, I don't know if I ever said it in Sniffing Glue, but, you know, my mantra at the time, it has to be different. You know, the punk scene is growing. The It was the creativity is really important to me, you know. I mean, I was really surprised. I don't sound a bit old, surely you weren't, but I was really surprised that, are easily a lot of bands that I like sort of like gave in in a way, mm -hmm. you know, and didn't didn't cease to be creative. I mean, the Buzzcocks turned to be like a sort of third rate pop act, didn't they? The Clash went all American and Boombox and all that bollocks, you know what I mean? The Jam, well, Paul was Paul. He wrote great pop songs. He was never going to come up with like anything, you know, too underground, just great records, you know. So all these bands, you're thinking, where is it? I think the only band I can mention that I think actually still made like really creative music and Charlie was probably Wire, you uh -huh. know, their three albums with Harvest. But apart from the rest, it all just felt full. Oh, then it's like punk never happened. You know, you can literally go back sort of four or five years and it had, you know, when Finn Lizzie were touring or and Uriah Heap and all that. And it's the same. It's just like loud rock bands playing at these mecca ballrooms. What, what is different? And then what I did find is different that as well as all that going on, there was this other thing. There was like indie DIY scene, sort yes. of people playing in colleges, like squats and that. And that's why I went off to join them. You know, people like The Door and the Window, mm -hmm. you know, people like the TV personalities, the more sort of indie sort of scratchy side of that sort of thing. So that I did I did find my new tribe, if you like. But the yeah, absolutely. scene, I thought, was hopeless. I mean, it, it, it just became the new rock scene. You know it I mean? got it listen. I wouldn't. I, I, yeah, I absolutely wouldn't argue. It got co-opted by the music business, and you did sort of famously, and it, and it is famous. It's credit to you. You were famous, like in that in in the scene, and you did sort of denounce it and and largely turn your back on it and and go off on the free festival circuit. I mean, on another day, if I saw you in person, I could argue the merits and and the demerits of each of the bands that you mentioned, because I mean, I do love the Buzzcocks, but, but I, it does remind me, I do want to ask this because I was looking at the book and I can't see where you actually slagged Paul Weller off enough that he would want to burn a copy of Sniffing Glue on stage. It seems very Paul Weller. Um, that, can you sum <laughs> no, up that said, story in no, 30 seconds? What no, was the deal behind that? No, there is. I think in a review, I think it might have been an earlier library. So is we accused, we accused Paul, and I knew him as well. So it actually might have been. I mean, I knew the guys well. You know, the Roxy was a small place. You know, um, I, I don't know if I said to their faces or we said in the gloves. Did we say like, oh, they spend too much time tuning up or something? You know what I mean? <laughs> we were like having a go in a way for being too professional. I mean, as you know, with Paul and Rick and that. I mean, they've been playing like the circuit for like years before yeah, sure. punk, haven't they? They've been playing that little, you know, working men's club circuit in Surrey and all that. So they were like, they were like old campaigners, really, in that. Yeah. So of course they were going to tune their guitars. You know, it wasn't like Eater or something. You know, or Slaughter the Dogs. So, but this is this is the truth. The truth. So there was that element. 
But the other element was, because I knew Paul a little bit, I knew how easy it was to wind up. So you just knew that if you said something like, yeah, if they stop, if they stop wearing those stupid suits, or you'd say like, if they stop shooting, you know that there'd be this reaction because he was so earnest when he only still is probably. He's so earnest about his work. And uh, so that's what it was. It's a bit of a piss take, really. But I thought it was fabulous, you know, burning the Pacific on stage. Well, it's publicity of, of, a, of a sort of welcome kind. Did he ever, did you, I mean, you must have seen him again afterwards. Did, did, that, did that come up in conversation? No, it didn't. Funny, I've seen the other guys more. In fact, I saw Rick. I saw mm-hmm. Rick like six months ago. He, did, he was doing his spoken word thing. We had a little chat about the old days, you know. But no, but I, I, I haven't spoken to Paul, actually. But I've always admired Paul because Paul's, Paul has done something exactly what I said the other people didn't do. You know, Paul was, I mean, made some great records. I mean, my favourite two records are like that period. And funny enough, this is the contradiction with me, because I just love music. I love yes. music. I love contemporary music, rock music. While I was making Vibe Up the Scene, oh man, my my favourite albums were this year's model, Elvis, mm. Stella, which is just genius, and Setting Suns. Uh-huh. I just thought that was brilliant. They were my soundtrack. And then the, and then the, I do Vibe Up the Scene, man, do all that. But that's stuff I was listening to. So I've always, and Strange Town, it is one of the greatest British singles of all time. It's great, know, isn't it? Town. Yeah, I feel Absolute so. I feel, yeah, I feel Absolute. so fortunate. So, and I've admired Paul because he's always avoided this nostalgia shit, hasn't he? He's gone off, formed another band, and then went off in his solo career. Not, I've not been into it. I've not really been liked any of his solo records, but I admire him for just sticking to his guns and doing his own thing. He hasn't felt the need to sort of join this great you know, punk nostalgia show and that. So all power to him. He's someone I really admire, you know. Yeah, fair, fair enough. Um, God, I hate to actually call you on this, but I think Set and Sons came out. Well, I know Set and Sons came out in late 79, so maybe it was all mod cons that was influencing. Yeah, all that, it the... was the jam generally. I always remember yeah. Setting Sons, but I was still living in that same house where my vibe is, so maybe it was, but but definitely around that time. I, I was I liked a lot of that, what, you know, new wave stuff. I mean, Elvis probably more so, Elvis Costello. This, this, year's, this year's model, model is, is just a phenomenal album, isn't it? It's, it's still it's, still, it's yeah. still scary. It's still it is. scary good you know what a it's, great it's, record but, what a what a brilliant again, record that, that's the energy that's the energy i was talking about with the film but they had such energy the attractions didn't they and the anger it's all coming out of the tenth. absolutely brilliant a brilliant live as well yeah time, he still you know? puts on a fantastic live show elvis uh he, he uh he really really does i saw him just last year and a few years before that and yeah. i was i was actually blown away that the few years beforehand um, uh, an open air show up here. I was just blown away by by the energy. He was like twenty. He was like he was twenty three again. You know, it's like he. Yeah, I haven't. Seen, I mean, the last the last time I saw him, he was touring that Spike album. Yeah, you know, the uh-huh. Spike album. He, you know, he was touring that. That's the last time I saw him. But still pretty good. You know, bloody yeah. angry still as well. You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, we do but, have yeah. we do have to wrap it up because I mean, you know, oh. people are going to enjoy. Hopefully, people who are going to make it to the end of this and uh, and have enjoyed it because it's such a great conversation. Because you were right there, and I mean, I I bookmarked and just made made some notes. There were so many great things in the zines, uh, so the book is available. Um, it's called Sniffing Glue: Other Rock and Roll Habits. Um, 
this show is meant to you know stick around hopefully somebody's going to find it five years down the line mark just like they find you know yeah. your old writings years years down the line it won't date the book won't date hopefully this podcast won't won't date the you know the energy is what jumps out and the fact that you know you put out your dozen issues you got up to 15 20 000, you knew to call it quits punk had become definitely got co-opted by the music business and you carried on uh what's the word plowing your own furrow or furrowing your own plow or what carving your own <laughs> niche whatever they call it and making your own music and um yeah yeah that's that's admirable, and that's that's about as punk as it gets, really, isn't it? Really, following just your own muse. I've never really been interested in being a writer. That's not. I've never written an autobiography. I've had lots of offers, but yeah. I've always not been interested in doing autobiography. If you want to know about me, I would say, if you want to know anything about me, just listen to alternative TV records. There you go. There you go. So do that. Go off and find your alternative TV records, Mark. It's absolutely brilliant. It's been so good to do this, and. Um, and I'm just really, really glad we got it together. It feels like it all came together at the right time. Yeah. Cheers, Tony. Cheers, really, mate. Really enjoyed it. Cheers. Bye. All right. There you have it. My interview with Mark Perry of Sniffing Glue fame all about uh, his time running Sniffing Glue, and you may have noticed that the episode, the interview ran long. Interestingly, when we were talking, it really did not feel like it was running long. So I've got to hope that that come, came across in um, in the interview you just heard. Uh, otherwise, I'll be talking to dead air, and, and I've got to assume there's some people still listening. Thank you for doing so. Thanks for bearing with us, um, and obviously, I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I think the only thing that I wanted to correct from myself listening through to that, when I interviewed Mark in Brooklyn, I mentioned it right up front of the episode, uh, he wasn't playing Southport. Uh, with alternative TV, brilliant venue though it though it was, and it was at the top of my street. It opened after I moved to the area. He was actually playing at the record shop, something else further down Fifth Avenue in Park Slope. It was a wonderful little shop uh, run by my friend Anthony Roman, who fronted the band Radio Four, and that was an, a, an extra special day for Anthony and for me. Um, sort of, you know, being from South London and having alternative TV play. Pretty much on the block, if you know what I mean. Other than that, I don't think there's too much more I need to add to what you've already got there. Um, this show will hopefully run and run. And uh, at this point, it's bouncing around in terms of its coverage. Everything is to do with fanzines. If you want to stay on top of my writing, it's tonyfletcher.substack.com. In the show notes, of course, here, as I mentioned up front, you'll get links to uh, a dedicated page at Substack uh, about this episode. So please follow through. It'd be great to have you subscribe over there. Um, I have another music podcast with a friend called Dan Epstein. It's exclusive to our paid Substack subscribers. It's called Cross Channels. We look, um, look at and dissect acts from different sides of what we call the pond and how they were received on different sides of what we call the pond couple of quick credits for you the uh, theme that you hear the jamming fanzine podcast theme as it was originally titled is by noel fletcher my teenage son and the logo is from greg morton over at omnibus uh, all the rest of it is down to me so you can blame me or praise me whichever you want or any point in between my name's tony fletcher 
we do this every month. So do the like, do the subscribe, and um, look out for another episode of the Fanzine Podcast popping up in whatever podcast platform inbox you have a month from now. Take it easy out there, and if you get bored, start a Fanzine. Cheers. Bye. Do you want to buy a copy of Jamming?